Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 25. I am your host, Stephen Oakey. Today's episode features my conversation with Andrew Prevo of Boston College. We had the opportunity to speak at the College Theology Society's annual meeting this past summer, and it was a great chance to catch up with him. We talked about Andrew's interest in theology and prayer and how those relate to one another, uh, the relationship between prayer and liberation theology. He talks a lot about his research on, on race and black Catholic theology and how he's moving more into studying feminist theology and seeing how a, a better gender analysis might aid in the study of mysticism. We also talk about his favorite Advent hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night, and why he could be the patron saint of dog walkers. As always, you can leave feedback for us on the blog or on iTunes, and thank you very, very much for listening. I'm here today for the Daily Theology Podcast with Andrew Prevo, who is an assistant professor of theology at Boston College. Andrew, thank you for being here. Great to be here. So the question I'd like to start with is, how did you come to do theology? Like, what what was uh, your trajectory or your, your path or how, you, how that interest came about for you? Well, you know, for me, I think it really started with prayer. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in a Catholic household, and um, sometimes we would always go to Mass, but in addition to that, sometimes we would pray the rosary, especially with my mom. Um, I would pray the rosary sometimes, and I would go with her sometimes to her rosary group. But I, I, I was... I was a pretty prayerful, spiritual little kid, I think. Mm-hmm. But I was also, I was also a pretty smart kid, pretty intellectually curious, interested in a lot of things, science, math, and so forth. And so, I think it was only a matter of time before that prayerful side of me and the intellectual side of me tried to find some sort of reconciliation and, and come together. And so, what, did it, did it conflict early on, or you know, I don't really think it was. I don't think it was conflictual, but it it did feel like sort of two modes that Mm. I was in. You know, I would pray and then I would go do homework or or, or whatever it was. (laughs) And so, but I I had not heard of theology. Uh, You know, as a young person, I did not, I had no concept of theology. For a time, I had considered, when I was in high school, like, I had considered a religious vocation because Mm. I just, I had a, a, a very passionate commitment to, to the Catholic faith at that time, and it seemed sort of like a natural thing to mm-hmm. consider. But I went off to Colorado College and was a math major for a while, <laughs> And uh, but meanwhile had, had joined the, the Catholic community there, and mm-hmm. we were saying evening prayer and praying Lexio Divina and things like that on almost a daily basis. Hmm. And so... And, but I was starting to realize that math, though I kind of liked math, it wasn't, it wasn't answering all of these questions that I was having about the world, about life. I started taking some history classes, philosophy classes, mm-hmm. that were starting to cause some cognitive dissonance for me with, with my prayer life. Mm-hmm. So because I was reading about you know, the history of, of Christendom, which is not really a pretty picture, <laughs> by and large, <laughs> and... I was also reading philosophers, some of the masters of suspicion, like mm-hmm. Nietzsche and Freud and Marx and Foucault and, and some of these folks. And so they were, they were really challenging me to try to give an account of myself. It was also a very secular context. Mm-hmm. So I had, we had this tight-knit little Catholic community that was nourishing, but I, I felt pretty embattled as a, as a prayerful person mm-hmm. for a lot of that time. 
So I ended up and writing my. Can I, can I ask, uh, yeah, go ahead. Is, is Colorado College? Is this the one where you do like one class for a month and like rotate through? Yeah. So Colorado College, they call it the block plan. Okay. You uh, you do uh, one class for three and a half weeks. It's like an immersion experience mm-hmm. in in each class, and so. It's a liberal arts school. It's in the Rocky Mountains. It's fantastic. I would highly recommend it <laughs> to anyone who wants who wants a great liberal arts education. Do you? I'm just curious. I, I had a friend from high school who went there, and I, I was wondering, did do you think the like that structure of having classes versus like what I what I went the school I went to was you know it was like five classes at a time for a whole semester. Do you think that that like compartmentalizing of the classes might is that would that contribute at all to this experience? Like I mean, like you're doing philosophy very intensely for three and a half weeks. Do you think that maybe affected that at all, or like was it? A- well, it, it it is. Each class is essentially a retreat. You know, it's almost oh, like interesting. The um, it's almost like doing the spiritual exercises, <laughs> but with any given subject matter. And so it's literally four weeks. You know, mm-hmm. uh, well three and a half plus a two or three day recovery period. And so, um, but it, I, I think it promotes a depth of contemplation of yeah. the subject matter that you, that you have. And so I really appreciate that. Multitasking is not my strong suit. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I do appreciate the chance to really think something through mm-hmm. deeply and to focus, uh, to really focus on Interesting. something. So I think I, I had time to focus on these questions that history and philosophy were raising okay. for me. And then meanwhile, so I'd go to class, go pray, go read, and then you know maybe say some prayers before bed. And so there was this sort of, uh, these two sides of my, my psyche were, were mm-hmm. trying to figure out how they fit together. But I had still had not even heard of theology because Colorado <laughs> College has a religious studies department, but mm-hmm. it's mostly... Um, you know, it's not really theology for the most part. Sure. It's mostly a historical or sociological approach. But we, there was a guest lecturer who came to CC my sophomore or junior year, David Burrell, who oh, sure. was uh, uh, at Notre Dame at the time, a great philosophical theologian. And he gave a talk about Christianity and Islam. Hmm. And uh, this was shortly after 9-11. And mm-hmm. so it was, it was a very volatile issue at the time. And I was just blown away with how sophisticated his analysis was, and uh, I was just very impressed by him. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to be one of the first examples I had of someone who was as, as smart as could be, but also really deeply immersed in, um, in his Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and uh, really an intellectual and a scholar, and a prayerful person and a priest all kind of rolled into one. So, and I figured, I realized, so I looked him up online and I realized, wait, he's in a theology department. I should look into this. What is theology <laughs> all about? So when I was, I ended up with a, a philosophy major and decided I better go to grad school mm-hmm. because I wanted to, well, I wanted to continue studying, but I also didn't know what I was going to do yeah. with the BA in philosophy. So I thought, well, I'll go Maybe I can go study theology for a couple of years and figure out what that's all about. Mm-hmm. So I went to Notre Dame for a master's uh, in theological studies, thinking that I was just going to kind of take a couple of years and, and suss it out a little bit. But I, I really lo- I loved it when I got there, and mm-hmm. it, it felt like the thing I had been looking for. Interesting. For a while. So that's the long, the sort of longish no, answer no, to your first question. Yeah. Was was Burrell still at Notre Dame when you went there? You know, I went there thinking perhaps I could work with him, but he was 
he was sort of on his way out by the okay. time I arrived. So okay. I never actually ended up having a class with, with Burrell. Okay. The, you, you've talked about how like, part of what drove you to this is integrating your, your intellectual side and your sort of prayerful, spiritual side. And I, I know this is something that has continued for you in terms of your research and in terms of your teaching. How would you, how would you talk about the, the integration or the relationship between those two sides of either the self or of the community or, or of the church? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And I'm hesitating a little because it, it feels like such a large <laughs> question that I, I am trying to figure out what, um, what angle to take on it. I, I think that for me, I, I pray and uh, that, that's sort of a way of contemplating God and, and everything else in, in relation to God. And I realize that my thoughts that I have, as informed as they might be by research and, and, and reading and conversation, are, are inadequate to that, that mm-hmm. large mystery. So, so at a certain point, I always, if, in my attempts to figure everything out, at a certain point, I have to kind of throw up my hands and say, I don't, I don't fully understand. Yeah. And, and that, that in itself can be a kind of an act of praise, mm-hmm. uh, I think, for the, demi- the divine mystery. But at the same time, the, the thinking helps to clarify God and, and other things in relation to God. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I've found that that's, that's really enriched my faith over the years, to be able to think critically about different aspects of, of the church's history and practice and doctrine, mm-hmm. as well as any number of other things under the sun. Sure. So there's a way in which they kind of mutually inflect one another for you. Did you ever have an experience of... You mentioned how you know studying history and studying philosophy started raising all these critical questions for you, and and that maybe in a way sort of fueled the interest in you know going into theology. Did you did you ever have experiences where even the study of theology more directly caused like you know spiritual crises or, or things like that? I wonder in part because like I, I mean I've I've gone through that, but it. It often almost seems like a trope among theologians that like, yeah. studying theology can have this harmful effect on the <laughs> spiritual life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think early on it was helping me to resolve some of the existential crises that mm-hmm. I had. So I think early on it was it was helping me to feel like things were coming together mm-hmm. in my life. But I will say that the longer I've spent in theology, the harder it is for me to pray in some of the ways that I used to. Mm-hmm. It's mm. harder for me, especially Scripture. Praying with Scripture has become very difficult because I find myself, you know, glancing down at the footnotes and <laughs> and thinking about uh, interpretive traditions of this or that. And and it's easy to sort of slip out of that mm-hmm. uh, kind of state of of contemplation or adoration and into just my rationality, mm-hmm. you know, uh, running its course. And so that, that's become a little difficult. I've actually found myself relying more on the communal experience of just simply going to the Eucharist okay. and feeling like I can, in a sense, sort of lose myself in the prayer of the whole community. And I don't mm-hmm. have to be, I, I often actually am thinking through mm-hmm. arguments, but I feel like the the community surrounding me makes up for for my <laughs> for my absence of prayer. If I'm just by myself and I stop praying, then the prayer stops. But if mm. I'm in there in that community, the prayer is is ongoing, and I'm just sort of I can let myself be carried and, and inspired in different ways by that. Um, it's more of a team sport than an individual sport. Uh, but I would also <laughs> say that I've started to gravitate more towards simpler forms of prayer, like. Okay. 
simply uh, saying people's names, like people that that I want to keep in mind and, and lift mm-hmm. up to God in some way. I'll just simply kind of compose a spontaneous litany of, of mm-hmm. names that come to mind, and I'll offer those in prayer. That, that can keep me sort of focused mm-hmm. enough. <laughs> or um, sit, sitting in silence mm-hmm. and just trying to track my breathing and uh, do, doing that kind of centering prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things, I think, have helped me to not let my intellectual side become too dominant. Sure. Do you, when you teach... And, and I know you teach both undergraduates and graduates, right? Yes. Do you you teach classes that are specifically about prayer and spirituality? I, I have taught a couple of them. Yeah, okay. so I've taught a, an undergraduate course called Classics of Christian Spirituality, as well as a graduate seminar on mm-hmm. mystical theology. Do you, in, in teaching a course like that, or, or even, I mean, in teaching, like, you know, the sort of general theological intro course, right? Do you work prayer into those courses as an actual practice itself? Is it... Is it, uh, is it and, and if you do, is it a strange thing to kind of do while also balancing this? You're also doing this academic, critical kind of re- reflection on it as part of the class. I guess I'm wondering, like, do, well, do you do that? But if, especially if you do, how does that go? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something that I've wrestled with a little bit because as much as I want things to be integrated, I also want the students to understand that mm-hmm. I'm their professor and I'm not their spiritual director yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or their or their spiritual guide, you know, I don't want that role when I'm in the classroom, because mm-hmm. largely because I'm responsible for evaluating their work, and yeah. I don't want anyone to feel like I'm judging their hearts or yeah. their relationship really with God, point. because I do have to judge them. I have to weigh in <laughs> on their performance in the class, so I want it to be clear that I'm only doing that based on the criteria that are academic, you mm-hmm. know. So, so I do think there's some need for separation mm-hmm. in that sense. However, in the Classics of Christian Spirituality class, I, I have been experimenting with incorporating some spiritual exercises into the pedagogy. And mm. I, I, I've been framing them as experiential learning. Mm-hmm. And they're not graded, and, and I, I make everyone in the class agree that if anyone wants to opt out of any of these practices, that's perfectly fine, and no one should look askance at them or, mm-hmm. or feel weirded out. Like, if, if people are opting out, that's, that's fine. So sure. we have to agree as a class from the beginning. But I've done things like take them to the labyrinth oh, at sure. Boston College and, okay. and have them meditate on that. We actually, I actually, this was the most jarring experience I've had, I think, of this, which was we were reading some Sir Juana de la Cruz mm-hmm. and some of her meditations on the rosary. Mm. So I actually had us pray a decade of the rosary mm-hmm. in class using her meditations okay and, and then and then to talk about that afterwards and uh, that I think that was jarring because it was such a traditional form of prayer mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know to to have yeah. in a classroom do you uh, in these instances where you've done this and I, I don't know if you would have a sense of this or not but does can you tell in which always in which like, are Catholic students more engaged, less engaged? Are non-Catholic students, like, you know, whatever? Or, or like, is there any kind of, like, a sectarian breakdown in terms of how people respond to prayer? Or, um, You know, I've only taught this a couple of times, but sure. in, so my, in my limited anecdotal experience, people seem pretty excited to try these things out. Okay. And uh, whether they're Catholic, some other kind of Christian, or something else, mm-hmm. like, 
and in part it's because in this class the the people who are doing it are self-selecting you know they've gone oh, yeah. they've yeah. chosen to do a christian <laughs> spirituality class they so, saw the title <laughs> so all of them all of them are interested in it and all of them seem kind of excited to to try something out experientially even if they're not fully buying it so so even some of the protestant students in my class said they had a lot of fun you know praying the rosary the decade of the rosary because mm-hmm. it helped them to understand a little bit more what catholics mm had been doing, which yeah. is not to say that they were, you know, ready to become Catholic, and yeah. that's not my intention at yeah. all, in It's fact. a little touristy, almost, yeah. Yeah, but it's, the, yeah. it's sort of like going and tasting, the, you know, the beignets in, in New Orleans or something. <laughs> it's kind of like that. You're getting the experience of being in that, that place. So, but the, another thing that I found really helpful, and I do this actually in my core class, the Exploring Catholicism class, when we we do St. Ignatius of Loyola, mm. and I actually lead them in one of the meditations from the spiritual exercises, mm-hmm. particularly the, the meditation on the two standards, okay. which is part of, this, part of the exercises where Ignatius is trying to help people on the retreat make a big decision about their life. Mm-hmm. Often, you know, whether they are called to religious life or married life, but it might be some other big decision. Mm. So what I do is I ask the students, before we start the exercise, to write down in their notes, just do some free writing about any big decisions that they might have coming up mm. and get them thinking about their own life and what what choices are lying before them. And then we do the exercise, and then we we go back, and I, and I invite them to discuss uh, with the small groups and then to share in the large group, you know, how, how the spiritual exercises might have an impact on their own decision-making mm-hmm. process in their life. And, like, w- is it going to be relevant for them, or or did they find it unhelpful? I invite them mm-hmm. to, to, to be critical as well in that way. So that's that's gone over pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I guess the last one I want to mention, also in the intro class, is when we do scripture, I, I introduce them to all of the historical critical methods which I think is important for them to know. We read sure. Dei Verbum, and um, we have a sense of, of reading Scripture in, in the tradition, but also with critical lenses. In addition to that, though, I, I actually lead them through a Lexio Divina mm. process, uh, usually of just one small passage, because I want them to see that Scripture is also part of the life of prayer in the, in the church mm-hmm. and to give them that experience as well. Yeah. So again, if, if someone doesn't want to do that, they can kind of sit quietly and no one will <laughs> yeah, know the sure, difference. But any, sure. I, I invite them to sort of enter into it if they feel called to do that. Yeah. So. No, that's, that's helpful to hear. I, part, I mean, and I'll be honest, part of why I ask is I, a, a colleague of mine several months ago asked me if I, A, like, do I begin classes with prayer? And then B, would I consider doing it? And, and, and I, don't, I don't do it, but... The second question was the more challenging one, because I I don't know like I, I I have this kind of hesitancy about feeling like I'm imposing or shoving it down their throats or anything like that. I also have this hesitation that that you named about the like I'm not a spiritual director, I'm not your pastoral mentor, and so I, I feel some awkwardness about that. But I have also wondered like if I you know if I want to teach theology well, you know prayer is a part of that. It's it's distinct from from academic theology in a certain way, but it is a part it is part of the life of the church. And you're right. And so I don't know. I'm toying with how to not, not necessarily as a forced. You know, every day we begin with you know a minute of silence, or we we do the rosary or whatever. But like trying to find ways of 
integrating it into class. Yeah, and I, I don't tend to begin classes with prayer mm-hmm. um, because, because in a way I still want the academic context to be the predominant mm-hmm. message that I'm sending right. to my students. So we begin with, here's the things we're going to do in class today, you know, <laughs> um, and who's hand here, in your papers, not, you know, and that kind of thing. So it begins in a very kind of academic, normal academic way. But I do think that finding ways to integrate discussion of prayer and maybe even the, the option of an experience mm-hmm. of prayer into the, the curriculum of a class, mm-hmm. I, I've found that to be helpful for mm-hmm. me. And I, I think there are some contexts, though. It, it really depends on where one's teaching. Yeah, Because true. I think if you're teaching in a certain context where you can presuppose that everyone is in the same faith tradition and is, yeah. and it's part of a formation process, I would really consider beginning with prayer. Yeah. But a lot of theologians are at universities where they can't really count on that. Mm-hmm. And, and it, without some prior explanation about what's going on, I, I'm worried that students will feel alienated if, if they show up to class and then immediately yeah. they're in yeah. a prayer situation that they might not fully identify with or, or yeah. understand. So. And, I mean, in a, in a lot of cases, and I'm guessing this is true for at least some of your students, they're, they're in that class because they have to take that right. class. Especially and, the intro classes. Yeah, they yeah. have to be there. Many of them are not Catholic. Many were raised Catholic and now are trying to move away from being mm-hmm. Catholic and don't really want yeah. are already sort of resentful of, of having to take the class. Mm-hmm. So, Something else I, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I mean, I know, I know a lot of your research, you've written a lot on mysticism and prayer and, and spirituality. I know you've also written a lot about, about race and liberation theology. And I'm wondering in what ways do, do those topics, do they relate for you? Do they inflect one another for you? Is there, is there something that ties them together for you in a particular way? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I'm a black Catholic myself, but I didn't grow up poor or, mm-hmm. or really oppressed in any, any very overt ways. Mm-hmm. I, I can look back, though, on my childhood now and see see some of the ways that I did feel marginalized or, or insecure about mm-hmm. the way I looked because I was in I was living in a predominantly white community so I do I do think I felt a little bit like an outsider but it wasn't my own experience it was as I grew up becoming increasingly aware that a lot of people who looked like me were were in a much worse situation mm-hmm. than I was and learning more about the history of slavery and Jim Crow especially as that impacted my own immediate ancestors, you know, mm. my own family. And that it really does explain my interest in, in black theology. But I was, I was really interested in figuring out how societies could help those who, who were most vulnerable. You know, mm. though I wasn't poor, but a lot of people around me were poor. You know, you see people on the street who are asking for help. A lot of people struggling with a lot of things. And so I've found that some of the liberation theologians like Gustavo Gutierrez and Leonardo Boff and others, including black liberation theologians, are, have a concern for, for the people who are poor mm-hmm. uh, and, and, have, and helped me to see how Christianity can re- really perhaps be good news mm-hmm. for the poor, which is not, unfortunately, it doesn't always play out that way. But I, I do think that's the sort of Christianity that I want to be helping people to understand mm-hmm. and to live out is, is one that really is good news for the poor, one that recognizes the full humanity of black people and of all people. 
regardless of how they look or where mm-hmm. they're from, what they believe. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think, so I, so I have an interest in these things. And, and recently I've become more interested in feminist theology. Some of the mm. things I'm going to be working on in the next couple of years have, have that as a central component because, because women too, I think, have been excluded too much from, from positions of authority in the church. The, their contributions have not been recognized. Mm-hmm. So how, how does all of this relate to prayer, spirituality, mysticism? I think for me there are a lot of, of very organic connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, I myself am a black person who found a lot of consolation and and encouragement in prayer, but I'm definitely not the only one. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've been inspired by Martin Luther King Jr., who mm-hmm. in a moment of, of weakness, you know, and, and fear turned to God in prayer and, and mm-hmm. gained that strength to keep going with his movement. And the, the the spirituals of the slaves, the the experience of the yeah. hush arbor, mm-hmm. is something that's just very dear to me. Also, I I don't want to romanticize the poor people of the world, but many poor people who I've talked to and who I've met in my life rely on prayer mm-hmm. as much as anything else to just get by day to day. You know, without without prayer, I'm not sure where they would return to. Sure. And so so I've actually experienced prayer the prayers of other people as a way that, that they're giving voice to their suffering in their situation, mm-hmm. but also ways that they're finding resilience and hope mm-hmm. in the midst of a difficult situation. Yeah. So to me, there was a sort of natural connection that I was seeing there. And then I was, I was pleasantly surprised to find when I was doing research on liberation theology that a lot of the liberation theologians see and, and really are calling for a strong connection between these two, yeah. uh, between contemplation and action, mysticism and politics or how, however they're they're phrasing it a, a couple of things i was wondering are uh, and part of why the question is, I, I wanted to ask it is i think for for at least for some you know in, in thinking about mysticism um the the sort of companion to that for many you know is prophecy or being prophetic right and and that might be more the trajectory that someone might think of as like, that's what liberation theology is really about. It's, it's this prophetic voice calling out injustice, you know, struggling with, you know, sort of oppressive systemic issues. And so it's, it's not as, at least not as immediately obvious where like mysticism fits into that. But, but another side of that is, and I'm, I'm generally curious what you would say about this, is that there's this sort of, you know, there's this elitism in academic theology where the the voices that matter are the ones with PhDs like we have, right. um, mm-hmm. or who have positions, or who have you know institutional soapboxes of some sort, and the the voices of those who who don't have that access and who may also be more deeply formed by prayer potentially. That I wonder if that also kind of contributes uh, or par- not contributes parallels a sort of a, a class elitism as well. Right. I do think there's some of that. The the sort of academic disdain for prayer mm. I think can be can be a kind of elitism that doesn't recognize that that's how a lot of people are actually not only opening themselves up to God but but gaining a real understanding of of God's law and and God's judgment upon mm-hmm. a world that that has discarded precious human lives. So so I think there's a lot of wisdom hidden in 
prayer and the prayers of people, especially those on the margins, those who are suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think that intellectuals, people with PhDs, ignore that at their peril Mm -hmm. because we, I think we stand to benefit from that if if we actually take it seriously. Yeah. But I, I do want to answer the question about prayer in relation to sort of the prophetic, the, yeah, the struggle yeah. for justice. Yeah. And I think I can see it in a couple of ways. So on the one hand, there are the prayers of those who are crying out in distress. Mm-hmm. And so that that's doing something for, for the, those who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, that, that uh, the prayer, uh, especially prayers in community that they have are, are part of what is sustaining them and their struggle mm-hmm. to survive and to, to find freedom and dignity and justice. So that's number one. But I also think that prayer can be, certain forms of it at least, can help lead one to a place of action, can help to transform mm. one, one's understanding of oneself and, and to make one more aware of God's call for mm-hmm. one in the world. And so that there's a good example of this would be someone like Dean Brackley, mm-hmm. who you know thinks about how the, the spiritual exercises of Ignatius could call us into a liberative praxis. Okay. So I think on the side of those who are trying to help out and on the side <laughs> of those who need help, I think prayer might play a, a larger role than we, than we recognize. Okay. But I don't want to oppose it to activism. And in fact, one of the ways that I use the term spirituality is how I would define that would be a kind of prayer without ceasing or a prayer, mm-hmm. a prayer, which is to say a relationship with God that's sustained throughout all of our daily habits, lives, activities, and so on, including works and for, for justice, efforts to organize against oppressive systems. So, so my idea would be that, you know, an activist could benefit from remaining <laughs> sort of in a contemplative state even while... yeah while going, you know, putting themselves on the front lines. And mm-hmm. I, we see tons and tons of examples of this, from Dorothy Day to the Berrigan brothers to, mm-hmm. you know, all, almost any of the people, who, any of the prophetic saints in the tradition yeah. that I know of have actually been people of, of deep prayer and contemplation. Yeah, they have a mystical dimension as well. Yeah, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that, therefore, those who don't explicitly pray <laughs> uh, can't do any good for the world. That I'm... I'm Far from saying that, I think that there there are some very noble forms of secular humanist activism, but I I don't think it's a mere coincidence that so many of the prophetic saints in our tradition were also people of, of great prayer. So you you said that some of the the work you have coming up is going to have a sort of a feminist turn as, as part of it. I I'm curious one what what's kind of the next set of questions or the next phase of questions you have. I'm also curious, maybe partly on a selfish level, um, both just practically speaking, like how how you organize yourself, how you do projects, things like that, just the bare logistical things, but also how how does how do you work your research and your teaching with one another? How does it influence one another? How does it come out in the the undergraduate classroom or, or something like that? Uh, yeah, thanks. Well, I'll talk about my, my current research first, and then, and then I'll get to the sort of, I guess, question about teaching and research <laughs> balance and yeah. how, how things go on a day-to-day. So, but the, pro- the project I'm working on now is, is really kind of a sequel to my first book. So mm-hmm. my first book is called Thinking Prayer. The second book, that the title I'm, I'm working with is uh, Mystical Life. Mm-hmm. And so my idea is to actually 
think about Christian mysticism and how it's affecting contemporary theology and philosophy. And, and mysticism, what is mysticism? In some ways, it's sort of what happens when prayer becomes intense. But, but a more technical definition would be an experience of divine union mm-hmm. or some sort of okay. awareness of divine un- union in one's life. So, so I'm trying to understand what, what purchase that idea has for us today. Now, the feminist piece is coming in in part because there are so many wonderful women mystics in the Christian tradition, which I think we should study more often than we do, and also who are not merely mystics but really theologians. And mm-hmm. so I don't want us to treat them merely as mystics. I actually want to... Mm-hmm to have us look at their theological content. But in addition to that, gender is also often involved in the way that people talk about divine union. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the Song of Songs tradition. There's mm-hmm. the idea of, of, of kind of marital union as an analogy for, sure. for mystical union. So, but there, the, culture, the culture has been shifting in terms of how we understand different gender roles and 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 there's just there are a lot of complications there i don't want to get into all of it now but but uh, but suffice it to say that i don't think we can really do mystical theology in the proper sense any longer while ignoring questions about gender i think we need a sophisticated gender analysis and one that is attentive to the ways that that women's voices have been excluded from the Mm -hmm. canon and and that women's roles have been overdetermined to be virginal or wifely or some combination of the two. Sure. So so I want to the project will will explore all of this in more detail. Yeah, yeah. So but let let me turn then to the other question about how do I <laughs> how do I you know go I mean, about this? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> you know, I'm still kind of figuring that out as I go and I mean, I I'm at Boston College, which is a a place that Values teaching, but also and perhaps especially research uh, from mm-hmm. its faculty. You know, they they want us to be advancing the field of knowledge, and that means going into the library, reading a lot of books, writing articles and and books of our own. So I I have to keep present in my mind every single week, almost every day of the week, that that that's really my job, mm-hmm. and no one's going to be there to tell me that it's my mm-hmm. job on a day to day basis like uh, my students will be. Students, students will remind you that it's, <laughs> that it's your job to help them uh, <laughs> learn things. And so, so They're still a, waiting for a paper to come back. Right, yeah. and uh, with, teaching, with teaching, it's not a question of, of remembering to do it. You, you have to do it. You, you have to show up. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to do your prep. There's a, there's a group of people who are depending on you every day of the semester to, to teach. And mm-hmm. so... So teach, finding time for teaching just comes naturally. The, the real difficulty is, is having the presence of mind to know that researching is equally or perhaps even more so a part of my job. And so mm-hmm. therefore, I have to act as though it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I have to really respond to that. And so what, what does that look like concretely? Some people find it, it helpful to set aside a day or two of the week to exclusively focus on research that is a nice idea, but I've not been able to manage that because it always <laughs> seems like something else is coming up. So honestly, what I try to do is identify pockets of two to three hours, mm-hmm. maybe four to five if I'm lucky on any given day, where I can really get some work done. And mm-hmm. then press the pause button and go take care of other things, teaching and sure. chores and maybe also 
hanging out with friends, having a social <laughs> life, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. So, so teaching, teaching can consume your whole life if you're not yeah. careful. So the only bulwark against that I've found is, is being very clear for myself that, that if I'm not researching and writing, I'm not really doing my job. Okay. And so what, what I will also say, though, is I, I take Saturdays off usually. From, from all of it, if, mm-hmm. if I can. I, I sleep in. I try to, uh, you know, just relax, get some exercise. I try to exercise a few other days in the week, <laughs> too. But, you know, um, I might go see a movie or grab mm-hmm. a beer or something. And that's been really important for my mental health mm-hmm. because it can really be a grind. And if there are other sort of young academics out there, I'm sure they'll understand that. And so I think we can feel so much pressure from so many different angles Mm -hmm. that we forget about leisure. So I really do try to take kind of from Saturday morning through Sunday afternoon as sort of a Sabbath. Yeah. That's wonderful. Do you, do you find at all that your teaching ends up influencing your research or, or vice versa? Like is the, the work that you're doing, do you sort of consciously bring that into the classroom? Does it, uh, does it unconsciously seep in in particular ways? I think especially the teaching I've done at the graduate level, but partially that's by design. Yeah. Because I've I've decided to do graduate courses that I'm, I feel very confident in that that I know the material mm-hmm. really really well, um, and that's usually stuff that I've been researching and sure. writing about, or that I'm planning to do that about. So so there's been a kind of natural give and take, and uh, it's been great though because. You know, I can kind of run ideas by my grad students, and mm-hmm. they're very intelligent. And so I can pick up on whether some ideas will fly, and <laughs> you know, they'll help me be alerted to what some of the the problems are that I might have to address as I'm mm-hmm. working on things. So, but I would say even the undergraduate teaching has has affected me in a way because has affected my writing in a way because I it helps me to be more aware of where people are at mm-hmm. and what kinds of questions they're having. And I think that just seeps in. Yeah, it strikes me. One common example that people will use is, or I'll, certainly I'll use when I'm talking about undergraduates, is what pop culture example can I use to illustrate you know, an idea about the incarnation or the resurrection or something? And it, and it changes you know, certainly you know, every couple of years, but even semester to semester, like something's not going to work or not. But it's also been striking for me how much I can glean from my undergraduates in terms of just what do they care about. Hmm. Like, yeah. I recognize a lot of my undergraduates, they take my class because they have to. So when I say what they care about, like, I mean it in a sort of a loose sense. Like, they're not <laughs> right. really passionately involved in, uh, in the area in controversy. But, but they do care about things like the way that they care about community or relationship or meaning or even the way in which they they wrestle or don't wrestle with scripture, you're, you're right. Like that tells us a lot about kind of where they're at and what they're invested in, and it it does end up shaping, at least for me, some of the some of the research questions I end up posing. Yeah, w- one example of that that I ran across is um, in in my undergraduate class. I've had a few students who have said, you know, they really struggle with a sort of faith reason. Mm-hmm. relationship or or religion and science yeah and because a lot of them are in these intro classes are chemistry majors mm-hmm. physics majors econ or something like that so I've started to try to incorporate more uh, resources for them on that topic in in the class but it's also 
I think made me a little bit more attentive to that in my in my own research that I need to, not that I need to, but that I, I really want to and I can make some of those connections. Mm-hmm. That, because to be doing a lot of work on prayer can can seem very much on the faith <laughs> side of things. <laughs> but but I want, I, I, I'm also in dialogue with a lot of philosophers and I'm mm-hmm. trying to keep, to give reason a fair mm-hmm. shake in all of this as well. Yeah. And, yeah, a lot of my students especially... Yeah, when we do like the you know different ideas of knowledge or reason, or we talk about science, and you know this, I, I want them to be critical about science in the same way that they're critical about anything else, and that's often a struggle because it's so, it just seems so self-evident, or even like I mean, there's a lot in like philosophy of science about like the the scientific method and how we know and, and all that kind of stuff and. You know, questions about value, like what? Why do we value what we mm-hmm. value? And even getting students to sort of think about like that is not necessarily a given is really challenging, and it it seems to just go against the whatever sort of dominant paradigm they seem to have. It's true, and I mean, I I do find kind of exposing them to some of the mystical tradition to be a, a sort of nice way to, to challenge <laughs> some of the sort of scientific certainties of the modern age or, or just if not that the the attitude toward language where mm. where the idea is that language gives us you know clear and distinct ideas mm-hmm. about objective facts mm-hmm. and like it may it may be able to do that to some extent but but there's also a way that it that it breaks down before before the mysteries of our lives, and and I I'm trying to get them to to see and appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So I, I I warned you of this the other day as we we wrap up. I like to close with some less serious questions. Okay, sure. And so I have, I have five for you. One is would are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea, but really neither. Really? Yeah. I mean, I have tea sometimes. Mm-hmm. I hardly ever have coffee. I just, I don't know. I don't really know how to explain <laughs> it. <laughs> but I wake up and I usually drink orange juice in the morning, right. and then I uh, might have a beer in the evening. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's the. Maybe this was the same for you, but like, I feel like there was just this, this socialization point at which like coffee became the thing to do, that I like just I missed. Or like I circumvented in some way, and like I, and I worked in coffee shops. Like it's not like I didn't know what it was, but it just never became like that. Became my default. So I, yeah. Now when I, I meet people for coffee, I'll often get a hot chocolate or a yeah. <laughs> smoothie or something, <laughs> something that's not really um, <laughs> healthy, but that I'm indulging in. Yeah. yeah. It may it may be I'll need to expand this question into more <laughs> less, less of a dichotomy. <laughs> What would you say is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? You can go either way on this. Okay, so I was thinking about this one, and I've decided that my favorite one is Creator of the Stars of Night, okay. which is an Advent, an ancient Advent hymn. And I, I'm not an expert in music theory, but there's something about the way it never reaches a point of resolution. You huh. know, each, vo- each verse ends, and... I can tell something's going on musically where there should be another note that that resolves the chord Mm -hmm. or something like that. And that doesn't happen. The song does not let you reach a point of resolution. And I think it captures, it performs so well the the Advent spirit of still being in a place of waiting. Oh, that's wonderful. And I also like it because it's, 
it's really about contemplating God in the night. And in mm-hmm. the nighttime for me is has always been a time I've I've liked more in a way than the day is is mm-hmm. a time of prayer. And so the so it, it captures something that that I really like. Yeah, I've never heard that one. I'll have to look for that. I'm not going to sing it. No, no, to- <laughs> but, uh, totally fair. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> you should you should listen to it. And, I'm also yeah. I'm also always a bit heartened when people name Advent songs that are not O Come O Come Emmanuel. Oh and yeah. Not, mm-hmm. not that that's not a fine song, but it it often just ends up seeming like that's the only song we have for Advent or right. the only one we ever hear. Such that like I, like there's the the setting of the mass parts where it's to the tune of O Come O Come Emmanuel. Right. Yeah. And, and it just like, and and it's fine, but it becomes a little I don't know, a little domineering, I guess. Yeah. Creator of the stars of night. Good alternative to O Come right. O Come Emmanuel. <laughs> I will check that out. Of whom or of what would you be the patron saint? Oh gosh, that's a difficult one. Perhaps walking, dog walking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't want to claim to be able to be the patron saint of prayer or anything like that because there's so many people in the tradition who are so much more adept at prayer than it's I a am. Heavy burden to carry. Yeah, but I do faithfully walk my little dog every day, and I do think that that's that's an important part of the Christian life. <laughs> and so, so I do think that if if I get that designation that will be enough for me <laughs> yeah well i, I mean I, I think it's open so <laughs> to the best of my knowledge a fourth question had you had you not gone the theology route hmm. is there another career job kind of thing that either you think you probably would have done or one that looking back like you think like that would have been a cool thing for me to do you know, in high school, I was voted most likely to be a politician, <laughs> and uh, at the time, I wasn't sure if that was a compliment yeah. <laughs> or, or not, um, but I like to think it was a recognition of my leadership skills or something like that. But there was a time where I considered going into, uh, you know, a political mm-hmm. line of work, but I don't think that, I think I'm too much of an idealist probably to have survived mm-hmm. in, in the, amid all of the compromises that yeah. inevitably get made in, in in real politics. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is, you know, I really do love poetry and music, and I I kind of have this artistic side that I feel I never fully Mm -hmm. developed. So sometimes I wonder what would it have been like if I had gone in a more artistic direction with things, but... Do, do you write poetry at all? or uh, You know, I, I dabbled in that in college, but mm-hmm. I'm sure none of it was, was very good. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I, 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 I'm not sure if I have that gift to, okay. to write poetry. But I do think that I try to pay attention to what the poets are saying mm-hmm. when, when I'm doing theology, because okay. I think that, that, that the poets sometimes find the right way to use words. And, and that's, I think, what theologians are trying to do mm. as well. Use words to describe things that are almost impossible to describe. Yeah. Final question. Okay. If, if, you had, if you were to become pope, what would your papal name be? That's an, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I, I'm inclined to say Anselm. I don't mm. know if there's been a Pope Anselm, but I don't, I don't know either. I don't think so. I don't, not that I know of. It doesn't ring a bell. Because you know he well he's one of the saints that that has a miracle uh, that's a proof for the existence of God and whether that proof is valid or not I still I still admire the fact that 
he had a, he had a kind of intellectual miracle on the books, <laughs> which I think is kind of cool. And also, you know, he was a person of great prayer mm-hmm. a- and thought together. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of the questions we could raise about Anselm, I do think that he sets a good example in that regard. Yeah. And and it would be just sort of, I don't know, it's the name that came to mind for yeah. me. Oh, no, that's a great answer. That's wonderful. Uh, well, thank you, Andrew, so much for being here. I, I greatly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, so. Steve. This was, this was a lot of fun. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 